kingship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. How's everybody doing? You guys getting used to being in this space? I know, it's an adjustment. But I, sometimes I think that God had us be in so many spaces, so we, by the time we got here, we would remember that it's about the people, not about the space. And so keep that locked into your brain at all times when you say, well, it's weird being in here, you know, with, um, you know, 900 empty seats around us. So there's 1,200 seats in here, guys. Just so you know, we're a little shy at 1,200 people. I don't know if you guys knew that. I know some of you aren't too good with numbers. We're starting 2 Peter today, 2 Peter. And 2 Peter is written by Peter. Now, Peter is a, he's a famous figure in Christianity. And in large part, he's a famous figure because there are these two dramatically different images of who Peter is in Christianity, whether that's the Catholic version or the Protestant version. Now, I know a lot of you were raised Catholic. It's been very common in the Northeast to be raised Catholic. I know a lot of you were raised Protestant, and a lot of you were raised, you know, irreligious, non-religious. And in the Catholic tradition, Peter is seen to be the first pope, okay? And Peter is often pictured when you go, if you go to Europe and you're walking around at the various cathedrals and you see those stained glass pictures of Peter, and Peter is always seen as this immovable rock, just like his namesake, the rock. He's strong, he's rugged, he's normally wearing like a bathrobe, and he's holding keys to the kingdom because of this verse that Jesus said where he said, I give you the keys to the kingdom. And he's kind of like perfect in the Catholic version. He's floating three inches off the ground as he leads the early church. Now, although Peter cast this long shadow because he's the first pope, according to the Catholics, by the early third century, in other words, uh, the early 200s, he basically becomes diminished. And no longer is he some person that people think about. He is diminished to become just an office, just a chair to be filled. Although Peter holds this place of faith in Catholic history, and he has this place of strength with the early Catholic Church, the truth is he drifts into memory do you realize there's more books written about the other popes than there is about Peter? Peter basically becomes this one-dimensional picture. He's just a chair that you have to fill now that that guy's dead. Now, the Protestant picture is very different. One author I read, he said our Protestant picture is mostly shaped by Jesus Christ Superstar. Has anybody seen that movie I, I, it's like, or play? It was one of my favorite plays we did when we were in high school, Jesus Christ Superstar. And the Protestant picture of Jesus is very different. You see, because the Reformation, which happened just about 500 years ago when you had this group that broke off from the Catholic Church. Um, Steve and Breton talked about the Protestant Reformation last year in one of our book clubs. did a great job. That Reformation brought with us some clear distinctions, saying we disagree with Catholic doctrine in these core areas. And there's lots of core areas, like salvation by faith alone, right? That's a real big one as opposed to faith plus works. But one of the biggest ones was this idea that the Protestant church rejected papal infallibility. That's another way of saying that the Pope is perfect. They rejected that. And so for Protestants, 
Protestants acknowledge, and I believe rightfully so, that the Pope is not just some superman. He's just a man. He's just a man. The Protestant picture of Peter is much grittier than that of the Catholic Church. In the Protestant tradition, Peter is still strong, but he's strong in a different way. He's rough. He's a fisherman. He's got a bad temper. He's impetuous. He's quick to get in a fist fight. He's quicker still to say something out of turn today and put his foot in his mouth tomorrow. This is the Peter we know, right, as Protestants of the Protestant tradition. We like Peter because, frankly, Peter's a lot like us, and that's why we like him. But if we're honest, both of these images of Peter, they're kind of like one-dimensional, poorly written characters in a movie. Is Peter some flat, you know, cheesy anti-hero who like saves the day, but he's got a temper and he smokes a cigar? You know, is that Peter? Or is he more like the Catholic version where he almost seems other than human? Jesus called him the rock. He renamed him the rock. And we know that God used this man to build much of the early church's ministry. But as songwriter and author Michael Card beautifully stated, he was not a rock the way we might think of one. He says, quote, he was a fragile stone, still completely dependent on his master and friend, Jesus, even as Jesus had insisted on his own dependence on the Father. You know, it may surprise you to learn that in the Gospels, Simon, or Peter, is actually the most well-developed co-star. If you have a careful reading of the Gospels, it's going to show you that he's the only other full-formed character besides Jesus in the Gospels. He's the most well-developed besides Jesus. But, like I said, all of that said, if you push aside commentaries, and if you go on Christian Book or Amazon, and you look for books about Peter, you're going to be hard-pressed to find any of them. You'll find books on Job, on Joseph. You'll find books on Esther and David and Paul, but you'll be hard-pressed to find a book on Peter. I wonder why that is. I wonder if it's because the controversy is just too great, between Catholics and Protestants, and so it's kind of like, well, don't touch that topic. I don't know, but there's a sense in which Peter is kind of left on the outskirts. He's misunderstood, caught in between Protestants and Catholics. And yet, if you think about it, this is kind of fitting for Peter. Because in Peter's life, in the New Testament, Peter was always wedged between two conflicting warring groups. That's like his whole deal in the New Testament. First, it was the disdain that came with being one of the first believers. So were they Jews? Were they not Jews? Were they followers of the way? Were they Jews for Jesus? Were they Christians? What were they? And second, we see that Peter is thrust right in the middle of probably the most volatile conflict in the early church, which was the colliding of two worlds, the Jewish world and the Gentile world. Were Gentiles allowed to follow Jesus? What about all those old Jewish laws? Did they have to follow them? Did they have to get circumcised? they have to do sacrifices? And Peter is thrown in the middle of this controversy and many others. You realize it was Peter who had the vision of being commanded to eat all manner of unclean foods. In Acts chapter 10, the sheet comes down and there's like an octopus and there's like a, like a lizard. And there's just like a 
bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich. And God says, get up, kill, eat. And Peter says, I'm not eating that. I don't eat unclean food. It's Peter who has this vision. And then God says, Peter, go to Cornelius' house, who's a Gentile who fears God. It's Peter who witnesses the Gentiles. Gentile, by the way, means non-Jew. If you don't know what that word means, it just means non-Jew. It's Peter who witnessed the first non-Jews receiving the Holy Spirit. And it's Peter who had to go back home to Jerusalem and tell everybody that he just saw a bunch of snake-handling, you know, guys with ten wives get the Holy Spirit. And, and he had to explain this to the other Jewish Christians. And what do you think they thought? They thought, there's no way. Those guys can't receive the Holy Spirit. They're pagans. Only we can receive the Holy Spirit. Where are the people of promise? It's Peter who's always thrust in between these things. Even today, it's Peter who's caught between Protestants and Catholics, caught between two different types of Catholic, <laughs> claiming who he is. And then for us, most as Protestants, we try to relegate him to the side, and we say, well, he's just one of the 12. So what do we know about Peter. What do we know about Peter? Not what's, you know, some myth or what's tradition, but what do we know about Peter from the Bible? This is what we know. We know his given name was Simon Bar-Jonah, and Bar-Jonah in Hebrew basically just means son of Jonah. So in other words, his name, if he was around today, would be Simon Johnson. His father's name was Jonah, and we don't know his mother's name. He's referred to almost 200 times in the New Testament. Now, you compare that to the Apostle John, who's the disciple who was loved, as he refers to himself in the book of John. John is only referred to 31 times, while Peter's referred to 200 times. As I said earlier, as we were leading worship, Jesus gives Simon this new name, Peter, which means rock, and then mysteriously never calls him by that name ever again. Peter has a brother. His name is Andrew. And it was Andrew who first brought Peter over to Jesus. Andrew, we know, was a disciple of John the Baptist. And maybe Simon was, maybe Simon was, we don't know. He was originally from Bethsaida on the west coast of the Sea of Galilee. But for some reason, he relocated to Capernaum. His house was large. It was two stories. It provided space for Peter, for Peter's wife, for his mother-in-law, for his brother Andrew, and maybe even for Jesus. We know he was a fisherman, along with his brother, Andrew, and with, he partnered with James and John. Now, like most Jewish boys of that age, at the age of five, he would have started studying the scriptures, and he would have studied those scriptures for most of his childhood. He would have been married at the age of 18 because that was his social requirement. He had a Galilean accent, accent, which was very noticeable to the rest of the Jews in the region, and it would have sounded harsh and guttural compared to what they were used to. And not only was Peter one of the twelve, but he was one of the three. The three were the three core disciples of Jesus, Jesus' innermost circle. He was part of that three, along with his former fishing partners, James and John. So James, John, and Peter, here they are as this core Jesus, three musketeers. Every time there's a list of the disciples, Peter's name is always first. It's always the first name in the list. That's significant. Peter is the first person to be called by Jesus. 
He's the first person to confess his sinful nature to Jesus. Many of you remember that story that they'd been fishing all night long, and as they're, they're tending their nets and they're, they're cleaning everything off and they're folding up and they didn't have a successful night, and then what happens is Jesus says, can I stand in your boat and keep preaching because these people up here be all up on, much like it is today, you know what I mean? Just 1,200 people, right? Joking. And as he gets in the boat, and he's preaching and teaching, and then he says to Peter, hey, let's push the boat out, throw the nets one more time. This carpenter telling the fishermen what to do, right? It's like me going down by the docks of the lobster house. What you guys doing? Right? What's that, a boat? It's a nice boat. I got about seven or eight, John nice. And so then uh, Jesus says, all right, let's go. And so they go out, they go, and, and then they cast the net, and it gives such a huge amount of fish that as they're pulling the net into the boat, the boat's almost capsizing. And the fish are all the way up to the top of the boat, and now they're just slippery, and they're slipping on fish. And you think that they would be excited, but Peter, he falls to his knees before Jesus, and he says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. And Jesus picks him up and he says, from now on, you'll be fishing for men. Jesus and Peter have this special relationship, the first to be called by Jesus, the first person to confess his sinful nature to Jesus. If you ever notice, it's Peter that Jesus rebukes the most. You don't really see him rebuking, you know, I don't know, some of the ones you don't remember. You know what I mean? You don't see him rebuking Matthew too much. You see him rebuking Peter. Did you know at least seven of the miracles that Jesus performed were either for Peter or in direct connection to Peter? Think about that. I mean, you probably wish that was true for you, right? There's two miraculous catches of fish fittingly bookending not only Peter's calling but his commissioning, right? The first one that I just described, the second one, when they go fishing, Jesus is back from the grave, and they decide they're going to go fishing, and they see Jesus on the shore. Peter drags in the fish. So there's two there. The curing of his mother-in-law in Peter's house. Peter was like, just joking. Joking, mother-in-laws. Joking. <laughs> Bonnie's here somewhere, right? Peter walking on the water. That's one of the miracles of Jesus with Peter. Um, the coin in the fish's mouth when they have to pay the tax. And Peter says, the sons are free. But so as not to give offense, throw in a line. And he throws in a line, he catches a fish, and inside the fish's mouth is the money for the tax. The healing of Malchus's ear. When the guards come to arrest Jesus, Peter's like, here we go, here we go. See, I can do this kind of stuff now. because we got Before, the stage was this big. So he gets the sword, he cuts off Malchus's ear. He's like, yeah, and Jesus is like, Peter, you're such an idiot. And he puts the ear back on. The great escape from prison, Peter gets arrested. And an angel in the middle of the night says, come on, get up. Peter's like, all right, let's go. And he's following the angel. And then he goes back over to his house. And the servant girl comes to the door and she's like, it's Peter's ghost. And Peter's like, it's me. She's like, it's his ghost. Don't worry about it. All these miraculous things that happened to Peter. 
My point is this. Besides Jesus, Peter is really the central character in the Gospels. He is one of the few allowed to join Jesus at the Transfiguration where he says the best thing to do would be to pitch a tent so everybody can hang out for a little while. When a a question arises about the temple tax, the tax collectors don't go to Matthew, contrary to what the chosen shows. They go to Peter to ask where it is. Even the outsiders saw him as the leader. The story of Jesus cleaning Peter's feet is essentially, or it's, the story of Jesus washing feet is essentially a story about Peter and Jesus, isn't it? That Peter's going to deny Jesus three times, and Jesus says, you're already clean. You just need to clean your feet. Looking forward to the fact that Jesus had declared Peter clean, but he would need to confess and repent of these things. Peter does deny Jesus three times to servants, But then he's reinstated just as many times as Jesus says, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. The gospel of Mark actually could be called the gospel of Peter. I don't know if you knew that. It's actually Peter's gospel, not Mark's gospel. But Mark is the one who's writing it down. And not only that, but most think that it was the first gospel that would become the pattern for what are called the other synoptic gospels, namely Matthew and Luke. So Mark is Peter's gospel, and then from that framework, many scholars believe Matthew and Luke would be written using a similar flow of thought. It's Peter who proposes the replacement of Judas, the one who fell away in Acts chapter 1. It's Peter who preaches the first sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. It's Peter who performs the first miracle in Acts chapter 3 and then stands before the Pharisees and then goes to prison. It's Peter who defends the gospel before the Sanhedrin. It's Peter who decides the case of Ananias and Sapphira when they lie about the amount of money that they got from their land and try to look more important than they actually are. It's Peter who mediates between Paul and James as they argue about whether or not Gentiles need to get circumcised. And eventually, Peter leaves Jerusalem, and he passes the baton to James, and he gives himself to missionary work in Antioch, Corinth, and then to Rome, where he would die. Legend has it, it's not proven, but legend has it, that Peter was crucified upside down because he said he was unworthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord. The point is this, Simon, Peter, was the first disciple to do practically everything from preaching to healing. And he was a complicated man, feeling deeply unworthy, but also overly confident, which means we can relate to him. How many of us have those same two emotions? Deeply unworthy, remarkably overconfident. That basically describes most of our lives. And so we arrive at 2 Peter, written from Rome. 2 Peter, written in the shadow of death. This is the last thing that Peter would write before he gets killed. In many ways, it's his parting address. He makes that clear in his letter that he wants to make sure that they have a record of the truth for after he's gone. It's his plea to the churches. So what is Second Peter all about? Well, it's only three chapters. So we're only going to be in it for 20 months. 
Think about that. We're going to be it until until December. Think about Second Peter as a summary of Peter's understanding of Christ. It wrestles with questions like, why and how did God save us? What should we be doing now as followers of Jesus? Why is the gospel trustworthy? What do false teachers look like? What do they smell like? What do they do? Why are they wrong? And what do we do while we wait for Jesus' return? These are the questions that Peter is going to address. And I think you're going to realize that they were the pressing issues of his day, and they're actually the pressing issues of our day, too. The book is divided into three chapters. Chapter 1 is mostly about the importance of growing in maturity since our faith is built on a trustworthy, reliable truth. Chapter 2 is all about the dangers of false teachers, what they do, what they say, how they act, and the fact that God is going to judge them. Even though they exist alive today, that doesn't mean that God approves of what they do. Peter makes it clear how to identify them. And then chapter 3, Peter strongly exhorts true believers to live quite differently from these false teachers, that they should be preaching the gospel, They should be pursuing holiness as they wait for Jesus' return. But there's something else really interesting about 2 Peter. And I said to Gina the other day, I said, I haven't read it in any other commentary, and that makes me a little nervous. But I don't think there's anything to be nervous about. And I think you'll find it too. That many of Peter's big ideas in 2 Peter parallel the parables from Jesus' teaching. It's almost like the parables that Peter listened to became the core concepts that he would unpack over the course of his life, uh, course of his life to develop this complex theology. So, for example, um, you know, when he says, look, these false teachers, they're not going to get killed yet. God's able to preserve them f- for wrath the same way he's able to preserve you for rescue. And we can think about the parable of the wheat and the tares, where Jesus says, don't pull the weeds out, let them grow up together, and then we'll sort it at the end. And so there's so many times in Second Peter when Peter gives us a theological concept that's rooted in a parable, which I think is pretty cool, actually. Breton probably thinks it's cool. Breton, do you think it's cool? Breton thinks it's cool. It's super cool. That's how they talked in Germany when we were there the other week. I'm I'm not joking. David, isn't that how they talked? Super cool. Super duper. Okay. Where am I? Super duper. Super cool. All right. Anyway, I hope to point these parables out along the way. I hope to use more German accents. These are things I really hope to do and accomplish in Second Peter. So, in conclusion, okay, Peter's letter is super dense. It's super dense. Um, if, if you start reading Second Peter, you're going to realize you really could go really slow. We're not going to go super slow. We're going to do this in nine weeks, three chapters in nine weeks, but it is a dense letter. It's a letter that assumes you have foundation in some Hebrew concepts that you understand things like the flood and the Nephilim and Sodom and Gomorrah. So, You should read 2 Peter, and if there's things you don't know, circle them so you can go back and read some of those parallel stories, okay? 
It's dense, but Peter's letter is also beautifully written to remind us of gospel truth. Peter's going to encourage us to keep on growing in love. He's going to challenge us to trust the Word of God over our own experiences, which is such an important thing in today's day and age when everybody wants to value experience over the written Word of God. Peter directly attacks that, literally directly attacks it. We're going to see that these patterns of false prophets of old become patterns of false teachers. It's a fascinating thing that I noticed this week that he says, and the false prophets, and then he says the false teachers. And it's like the false prophets before the scriptures were written become the false teachers now that the scriptures are written. He's, we're going to discover that people have been struggling with the same basic sins basically forever. That the doubts that plague your mind are probably the same doubts that plague, plague Peter's audience's mind. You can be sure that God wants to speak to you through this letter because Peter penned it by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I would encourage you to read. I would encourage you to read through 2 Peter. I mean, if you put it on your dwell app to read to you, it would take 10 minutes. It's not a long book, but read through 2 Peter. Maybe commit to reading it through every day for a week just to get it latched into your brain. Read it in different versions. Read it in the ESV and the NIV and the NLT. Read it in different versions. And also, if you so desire, I would encourage you to begin reading through the Gospels over the next two months and paying, paying special attention to this man, Simon Peter, to look at the complexity of his life, to look at the fragility of his life, to look at the way that he changes because these aren't just flat people. These are real people like us. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you how you too are like Peter, that you are like this fragile stone. That all of us are plagued with the pendulum swing of deep insecurity and overconfidence. That all of us know what it's like to be rash today and regret it tomorrow. All of us are quick to make promises and then quick to break them. All of us are desperate for the forgiveness that only Jesus can offer. And though we love him, we fail him far more than we would like to. But as Jesus was quick to forgive and quick to reinstate, Jesus is quick to do the same with us. And so let us learn from Peter's story because it contains the same character flaws that we struggle with. And so I look forward to exploring this together with you guys. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up one more time. And we're going to sing this final song, Is He Worthy? And the reason we're singing this song, Is He Worthy, is because as you look at Peter's life, you realize God was constantly placing Peter in situations where Peter would have to ask, is this worth it? Is it worth it to go away from my family and follow this vagabond teacher? Is it worth it to go and stand next to this man knowing that could have cost me my life? Is it, is it worth it to, to leave the, the village of my youth? Is it worth it to leave everything I've known? Is it worth it to stand against, you know, the culture of the day, which would tell you what is right and wrong? Is it worth it? And the resounding answer that Peter gave time and time again is yes, he's worthy. And so we're going to sing this last song, Is He Worthy? I'd encourage you to join us. Please stand.